You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The following podcast is a live recording of Unemployed Workers Fight Back from the 13th of August 2021. We need to acknowledge uh, the following uh, musicians, uh, Alice Ivy and UB40 for providing music for our theme for the intro and the uh, at the at the end uh, and the songs that we played uh, there's what's good by Lou Reed is the first track uh, we have you from London by salt as uh, the second track and Almeida by Solange is the third track we'd just like to acknowledge and thank those musicians for their input Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts, Anne and Kevin, that's me, the second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show, between 5.30 and 6.30pm, here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Good, life's good. What's 
Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th of August. And Ooh, scary. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I'm going to walk under a ladder when we leave here. <laughs> uh, do we, hey, so we just heard from, uh, from Lou Reed now. I, I love Lou Reed. Uh, but mm. uh, as you'll notice, and most of the music I've played since I've started the show has been local, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's been female because that's the best stuff around. Mm. But then I realised that I'm forgetting all these other bands that I love, and Lou oh, Reed's great. I you're feeling Lou. a bit nostalgic today. Lou, maybe it's just been <laughs> I've been locked down and just been sitting at home and getting a bit cosy, but no, well, Lou Reed is very good. Yeah, and he'll never die, hey? History repeats itself, so um, he's still relevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you? Well, he, yeah, he actually did die. But and I thought about that when he died. I thought, oh, Lou Reed's dead, and I was really sad. The spirit will never die. Well, but then I realised, well, he never came around to my place. It's like, it's not like I knew him personally. And his music still plays. And so you go, well, he's not, like you say, he's not. He's not dead because his, yeah. his ideas are still there. And if you listen to that song, he was mm. talking about what's good. He said, what, what good is a disease that doesn't kill you? So it's actually quite a topical <laughs> song. <laughs> you can read a lot of things in a different way in these pandemic days. He was ahead of his time as per usual. Now, yeah. speaking about diseases that um, uh, that are no good if they don't kill you, uh-huh. we need to speak about the libertarians. Oh, not the libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> We need to understand the significance of libertarians because okay. the libertarians are a protest movement unlike mm. any other. And uh, it's it's quite phenomenal when you think about it. So, what do you mean a protest movement? Well, every time they uh, we have a lockdown, this, this group of people um, organise a protest and, and they, they oh, kind yeah, of... Oh, it's quite a phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, they, and they sort of, um, they call themselves freedom marchers. Now, mm. there was a, the freedom bus back in the 60s or the 70s, which was the Aboriginal... Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, protest back in the back in the day and then you had uh, protesters at the at the Vietnam War and you have climate change protesters mm. and so so these people are protesting with this feel good thing as if they they've got a legitimate voice mm-hmm. they don't <laughs> <laughs> it's a different kind of freedom isn't it it's the freedom of the individual that we seem to be hearing in these protests you know, I was I was looking at some of this in the media and there was a young woman in Melbourne holding up this sign and her sign said, imagine still believing any of this is about a virus. You know, so there is such a deep mistrust out there of what we're hearing in the, you know, in the media and what I think most people think, yes, there is a pandemic. This is about a virus that is very dangerous and we do need to do the lockdown. So, so what's going on with these protests, Kevin? And what's that got to do with like this libertarian kind of philosophy? Well, let's unpack this a bit. Okay. okay. So, so there is a, there's, there's this mistrust of government and that's been, uh, that's been generated over quite some time because government, uh, you talk about the Vietnam protests and you're talking about a government that was sending people off to war mm. uh, to say, right, you guys have got to go, and all those guys got to go, um, you know, uh, kill. Uh, right. And so um, there's government telling telling the population what to do. Mm. What, what we find with the libertarian movement is that this distrust of government has been hijacked by the neoliberals mm. because every other protest that you can think of mm-hmm. was protesting for the social good. The Vietnam protesters were protesting against war. Right. The uh, the Freedom Bus were, was protesting against the plight of uh, of our First Nations people. Right. These were altruistic movements, um, and they were protesting uh, for the better the betterment, the common good. Mm. These buggers, these libertarians, <laughs> are protesting for themselves for purely selfish reasons. They're saying. I'm protesting because I'm not getting everything I want. I want my liberties, and I don't give a stuff about the social good. I just, mm-hmm. I just want, I, I want to go to the shop, and I don't have to wear a mask. It's a real and, shift, isn't it? So, so we, but, but, you need to pay attention. Because, well, I hate to I say that because it sounds like I'm preaching. <laughs> it's important to uh, to understand um, how clever the mm. neoliberals are at manipulating a message. Mm. So they've taken the voice of protest, and they've now they're now applying. This this uh, libertarian movement to make it the responsibility of the individual. Mm. Uh, and if you have a look at say Gladys Berejiklian, mm-hmm. she is subscribing to this. So what she, what she's saying is that um, uh, we're going to provide you with the vaccine, and if you don't take it, it's your own fault. 
um, oh. because it's the responsibility of the individual, not yeah. government, right? It's, right. It's, so they're limiting their responsibility like they always do. Now, neoliberals want minimum government intervention in the economy and mm -hmm. anything else. Mm -hmm. And so they always push the responsibility onto the individual. If you're unemployed, it's because it's the unemployed's fault. It's not society's fault. The mm -hmm. neoliberals will tell you that oh, if you're unemployed, it's your own fault because you're a lazy bugger or you're, you're just you're not entrepreneurial enough or whatever. And now they're doing the same thing with COVID and they're saying, mm -hmm. if you if you catch COVID, well, we're going to supply the vaccine. And if you get COVID, well, that's your fault because it's your responsibility. Yeah, so that's the underlying thread, isn't it, through neoliberalism that we've seen since the 1970s at the economic level. And that has all been about um, saying that we need less government and more individual so-called freedom, which is really the freedom for corporations and capital to have their way with the economy. And now that sort of philosophy has spilled out and we're seeing it uh, through the liberal, the liberal government's attitude to dealing with the pandemic, and we're seeing it then in the response of people who, for good reason, I think I can really understand why people would mistrust government these days, because we have had decades of propaganda about the capacity of the government to, to spend into the economy for the public good, as we've discovered through modern monetary theory. So there's good reason, I think, for people to have that mistrust. But the thing is, you've got to figure out what's going on, what what really is, what's the propaganda and what's the reality of the situation. It's kind of hard to find your way through. And I have to say, I think that's what's been really helpful for me with modern monetary theories. It sort of gives you a bit of a... a, a a weather testing device for, for figuring out just what's going on with all these different um, people with opposing views telling you different things. Yeah, I'm not sure whether um, I'm not sure how relevant modern uh, monetary theory is to this this current movement because as we've discussed before, uh, uh, modern monetary theory is apolitical to a large degree. Mm. It, it it's just it, it's an explanation of how the economy works. This goes further into ideology. This goes into right wing versus progressive ideology, mm. and right wing ideology is all about um, the rights of the individual. And uh, and you you said you were just about to start reading this book, um, Democracy and Change, Change by yeah. Nancy McLean, which I've which I've read also, uh, and it it shows the history of this. Uh, of this libertarian movement, which goes right back to uh, the early U.S. Uh, slave days, when you had mm. um, the the owners of production and the slave owners mm -hmm. with their cotton plantations, okay. complaining about uh, intervention with what they can do with their slaves. Oh. So they were they were saying, "Listen, you know, uh, I'm running this cotton plantation, and you can't impinge on my rights and tell me what to do with my slaves." Mm -hmm. Which <laughs> the rights of a slave owner. <laughs> which, which is the ultimate contradiction. So, it's so fascinating, isn't it, that 2020s Australia could have a link back to, you know, 1750s America. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, and this this was capitalised on. When you read this book by Nancy mm. McLean, um, mm. uh, you'll you'll see it was capitalised on by this fellow, um, uh, James Buchanan, who, uh, who was linked to uh, Milton Friedman uh, and mm -hmm. um, was a, a big fan of James Buchanan. He was a... Um, an intellectual who set up universities through the 70s to advance the neoliberal ideology into economics and into law. Mm. And the repercussions of that, the flow, the flow and effect of that is that we now have lawyers and economists who are versed in neoliberal ideology mm. and they implement that, that ideology into, into government policy and into law mm -hmm. and we end up where we are. Yeah. With yeah. with people marching down the streets thinking that they're they're freedom marchers. And the irony is they're actually uh supporting the neoliberal ideology. Without even realising it. Yeah, supporting the economics that it's making that's making it harder for them to survive, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's look, this whole pandemic has been very revealing from an economic point of view and now we're seeing the ideology play out. And and we're seeing we're seeing the the polls. We're seeing where the divide lies. It's between, if you're a progressive, you're talking about operating as a society, operating with consideration to society, mm. operating in a societal manner. Mm. And if you're from the far right, 
you're talking about the rights of the individual mm. uh, and you don't care about society. And we're now 40 or 50 years down this this neoliberal uh, ideology, which is uh, which has taken over the Western world, where the individual has now is now so revered that <laughs> groups of people will march in the streets because they can't go to the pub, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just wrong. And it is just wrong. Yeah. Well. Um, so that's a really good analysis of what's going on. And you know, sometimes Kevin, I feel like it's just you and me in our little echo chamber. Yeah. But I do believe we actually got some mail. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. Um, okay, so, so we might have to start a new prog- a, a new uh, a new segment on our show, like you know, dear Abby. Yeah, yeah. You won't have to have dear dear A and K. So, so if you have for all your macroeconomic, um, uh, what do you call it, problems? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you call us up now. We have a uh, questions from a listener called Eric, who apparently is a uh, is a regular listener. So we've got Larry and Larissa and Eric, Eric. Now, which is which is terrific. Hi guys. And, and uh, so. Eric has some questions for us, and his first question was, I'm going to talk a bit about inflation, which is kind of interesting. Mm. He says, um, is this year's inflation rate 0.55% or 3%? Good question, Eric. I've got no idea. (laughs) So I look up my inflation charts, which I don't I did some research, and I wrote wrote them down. Oh, yeah, here we go. So so the inflation rates, 2019, our inflation rate was uh, 1.61%. Now, I've got to preface this because the Reserve Bank of Australia, the RBA target inflation rate is between two and three percent. They're trying to get it to two and three. And we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's kind of like a, a forward lean on on the economy. What are those? Th- what are those things that you you rock around on um, that you hold on to and you do got to lean forward and they go forward? The, um, <laughs> oh, those Segway things. Yeah, Segway. Yeah. So so it's like those Segway machines. Oh, where, we're on this inflation Segway here. So the way I view it, and this could be entirely wrong. This is just how it's been explained to me. Mm-hmm. Is that you need to have a forward lean. On your economy, like you need to have a forward lean on your Segway, <laughs> otherwise you might fall over. Oh, right. Uh, and you definitely don't want to go backwards because because then it just gets <laughs> very dangerous. Backwards is messy too. So so the the deflation RB- we'd call that in yeah, economics. Yeah, yeah. If things start losing value, then everything goes haywire. Just like if you're going backwards on a Segway. So mm-hmm. the economy runs a bit like a Segway. You want to have an, a little bit of a forward lean on it. You don't want to have you don't want to be racing out of control. Mm-hmm. Okay. So inflation is like having a little two to three kilometer forward lean on your Segway. Nice. You don't mm-hmm. want to be on at 10 or 20 k's an hour because then you're going to start, <laughs> you're going to crash and, and terrible things are going to happen. Right. So so the RBA says that they want the inflation rate to be between 2 and 3%. Uh, in 2019, it was 1.61%. 2020, it was 0.87%. Oh, you have done some research. I, I Googled <laughs> <I'm> it. <impressed. laughs> it wasn't very Mr. hard. Mr. Google. Right. You just, yeah. um, 2021, it was 1.93%. And 2022, it was one percent no, 2022, they're expecting it to be 1.64%. Yeah. Okay, so it's under the target rate the whole the whole way through, mm-hmm. and that's why they've been dropping interest rates because they they're using monetary policy to try and stimulate the economy. Try and get that forward lean, and it ain't working because um, uh, because if people haven't got money or if the settings aren't right, mm. people aren't going to spend, and if they're uncertain, they're not going to spend, and you can make money free, which it pretty much is at the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just not going to work. So the inflation rate, um, Eric, uh, is this <laughs> is this year's inflation rate 0.55% or 3%? It's actually 1.73%, which it means it might have risen or dropped by point. I'm not sure where you got your figures from. It's supposed to be 3% and maybe it rose or dropped by 0.55%. And so that's the answer to that question. Mm. Um uh, but Nicely done. T- yeah, now, the second question was, is inflation so low because of an upward redistribution of income to Apple and Amazon instead of small businesses? So uh, uh, that's a kind of interesting question. Yeah, I'm not sure what the connection is there. Well, there's two things. Okay, so mm. so you, you were saying before that mm. maybe because uh, Amazon pay their people so little, that puts downward pressure on consumer spending. Mm. And so Amazon is kind of uh, symbolic of the the wage squeeze, right? So right. so people can't uh, earn money, they they can't spend, and that's going to put a downward pressure on inflation. Yeah, people because, aren't spending. Yeah, so if there's um, if your income is unequally distributed throughout the population, and so you've got increasing uneven income. Um, then your rich people don't spend all the income they're getting. They just save and buy houses and stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
and the poor people don't have any money to spend. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, well, I actually question this whole thing about if you're not earning money, that's going to put downward pressure on inflation. Um, it's, uh, I, suppose it w- I suppose it will, but um, no, it definitely will. I, I, I retract my previous <laughs> comment. <laughs> As I was thinking about it, I rethought my thought and, and it thought, thought it was no good. So, so there's that. The other thing is, is that Amazon and Apple make things very cheap. And so things don't cost much. Um, maybe the margins are low. Look, no, the, is inflation so low because of an upward redistribution of income to Apple and Amazon? I don't think no. so. These are factors. Yeah. Um, inflation is low because we've had low wage growth because mm. uh, because because our economy is suppressed through yeah. through monetary policy yeah. not working. What's well, the neoliberal? What, what the neoliberals managed to do quite successfully and quite intentionally <laughs> since the 1970s was to capture more of the national income for the capitalist class and less of the national income for the working class. And so, again, it's that thing about not having um, spending power distributed through the economy. So less spending power is putting a downward pressure plus... The governments running in their ideology, trying to run surpluses, have not done the spending either over the last decades. Yeah. And households have gone into debt as a result. And so, so all of that is suppressing inflation. So it's the fiscal policy, not the monetary policy, that would probably um, correct that. And that's what they're not seeing at the moment. Imagine how our economy would be going if we didn't have the government stimulus packages, such well through the GFC. The, mm. There was a whole yep, uh, yep. stimulus packages, but also if we didn't have job seeker, job keeper, and some of these other programs, our economy would be in the toilet. It would be <laughs> a, a complete disaster. So what we can see for that is if we have more government spending, mm. more uh, more support from the government when the private sector uh, is not functioning is underperforming the mm. government needs to step up now this is a complete what is anathema is that the right word <laughs> anathema anathema yeah. I, i'm trying to expand my <laughs> so you have to experiment with words you don't know just to try and um, get pulled up on it, it, it anyway it's uh, it's completely against uh, a conservative government's uh, uh, ideology to spend um, mm. because as we've been discussing they did it kicking and screaming they did it kicking and screaming so they've done it half-hearted they could have done a lot more spending, yeah. uh, and the economy would be performing better. What we're saying is, is, is you can run debt, and it's all good. That's that's all fine. So, mm. so uh, inflation, and the other thing about inflation, I'm just going to say this. Oh yes, okay. okay is is that um, the uh, orthodox economists are hanging out for inflation to to, to um, start taking shooting through the through the roof because mm. this is what they've been saying for years, mm. is that the government. Um, can't spend into the economy and and quantitative easing, buying mm. the government buying its own debt. Mm. This is going to devalue your currency and it's going to become worthless and you're going to have hyperinflation. Yeah, they've been doing all that inflation fear mongering, haven't they? Yeah, mm. and so they're kind of waiting for it to take off and it's not taking off. Haha. <laughs> okay, it's, which, which, because because yeah, their yeah. theory their theory is wrong, wrong, and it's it was never right. It was always wrong, and and oh. when you put a system under pressure like we're we're doing at the moment, you see um, uh, what that uh, what that does, and and which leads to the third question. Which, Another question. Four questions, was, Eric. He said, "How did Professor Bill Mitchell from the University of Newcastle predict the failure of Japanese bonds in the two thousands? Now, I'm not exactly sure if that's a, 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 an accurate question, um, mm, but." Mm. What we do know about... Um, Let's uh, remind listeners that Professor Bill Mitchell is the founder of Modern Monetary Theory and he has a blog with a lot of avid readers, including ourselves. And so there's probably a blog entry in there somewhere back in 2000 that talked about this. Well, Bill, uh, Bill Mitchell goes on about um, Japan quite a lot because Japan was heavy into quantitative easing to solve their debt uh, their debt problems. So the government the quantitative easing is simply the government buying its own debt. Well, the other thing that Japan did was it has a high, what are they called, high debt-to-GDP ratio. In other words, that they've done a lot of deficit spending over the years. Yeah, so they, they spend a lot and then they buy their own debt. And, and we've talked about debt on this program mm. so many times before, but when a government is buying its own debt in its own currency, it just makes a farce of the whole concept <laughs> of government debt. Right. It's like, okay, we're going to borrow some money from ourselves and we're going to pay ourselves back by by creating some more currency to pay ourselves back. And, mm. of course, what happens if they don't pay themselves back? Well, nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. 
which is and 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 uh, and you need to uh, a government needs to, to run deficits to expand its economy. This is, it's kind of really important. So debt is the wrong word. Yeah. It, it, like, yeah, so I think the whole thing is that all of the orthodox, all of the mainstream economists have been predicting, like they do the debt fear-mongering, they've been doing the Japan fear-mongering as well and saying that Japan's going to go kick off into this high inflation any minute now because they're doing all this spending and it's never happened and Bill Mitchell's been following this for 20 odd years I think and it's never happened. It's been driving people crazy because everybody's mm. been saying oh Japan they're going to go under it's going to it's going to go out of control I don't understand it properly Bill's tried to explain it to me a couple of times and <laughs> my brain is still trying to dig through it. Yeah and I think what might have happened at some point is that all that fear mongering meant that people got worried about Japan's bonds and they didn't the private um, sector did not want to buy these government bonds that Japan was issuing. And I think that because people believe the wrong economics that they got um, a bit scared of buying those bonds. I think there's something in, like that in that story. Yeah. And mm. did you know that um, uh, Bill is now um, being paid good money to go to <laughs> seminars, uh, corporate seminars, and explain uh, <laughs> what happened in Japan because everybody else got it wrong and he got it right. Yes. So how did Professor Bill Mitchell from the University of Newcastle predict the, the well, predict Cause the outcome? Because he understands of how the economy works. <laughs> he understands That's how the economy how works. <laughs> anyway, so there, we're going to have a bit of a break and come back and talk about other things, uh, UBIs and, jo and job guarantees. Uh, Ooh, look this. what's controversy, Kevin. Controversy. Um, and uh, so st uh, stick with us and we'll be back soon. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Walking over time and Morrison, saving for a car Jeffrey on my blower, talking about getting some love bots Tickets and I blew the Honda in the heartbeat My converse look like they've had a hard life I love them anyway Pull up at the garage, you can hear the bass Trevor tried to tell us, turn it down, fucking minis, babe Potty mouth, yeah, isn't that so? I know killers in the streets, but I ain't really involved we don't want to cause any grief, but we get triggered when hearing the sound of police.
way. Y'all got horses and stuff. Like people be on, people be going to work on horses and stuff. Talk about, let me just, uh, let me go see the queen. <laughs> Wait, oh, stop. you you live for the queen? You ever seen her? What's she like? Y'all eat crumpets and stuff. Hey, hold up, hold up. Let me see your teeth. Your teeth look real good. I can't really fool with all that rain out there. It rained a lot. Yeah, I heard about that. I heard it rained a lot. I don't, I don't, you know, you know, it never rains in Southern California, you know? <laughs> You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. So welcome back to Unemployed Workers Fight Back this Friday. Anne, how are you doing? Hey, Kevin. Black Friday. Black <laughs> Friday. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of Black Friday and things that could possibly go wrong, shall we talk about the universal basic income? Should we? Should mm. we jump into that oh. little puddle? Oh, it's, so, it's always so controversial, right? So um, so let's explain the universal basic income. It's, sure. it's a concept which has actually been tried before where a government uh, will pay every citizen, regardless of their income, mm-hmm. a basic income. Uh, so if you're earning a, a lot of money or you're earning no money, you get uh, just a basic income to keep the economy ticking over. So Gina Reinhardt would get the money. Yep. And I would get the money. And you would get the money. Uh, okay. And uh, and and they say that, and that's to solve any arguments because then Gina Reinhardt can't say, well, how come she gets it and and uh, and, uh, and I don't? Well, she does. <laughs> uh, and then other people say that the universal basic income should have a threshold, which is turning more into like an unemployment benefit or or a payment of some sort. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's what you call a basic income. A basic, oh yeah, basic income. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. But, so, so, so we we often say either a UBI, the universal basic income, or a BI, the BI. basic income. Right. Yeah. But there's no there's no requirement. There's no obligations with that. You don't have to. Doesn't come with an an assets test. Um, the UBI doesn't come with a means test. The basic income doesn't come with an activity test. So you don't have to do anything for it. I just give it to you. Um, and and some people reckon this is a really good idea. Um, we don't because we're from uh, MMT school. <laughs> we have a reason not to like well, it. Well, okay. It, but what do we like instead? It, well, yes, we, our alternative is the job guarantee, and the job guarantee is similar to the program that ran uh, – I always like to say this because people think it's fanciful, and it's not. It's similar to the program that was run uh, in Australia um, post-World War II under the mm. Curtin – uh, Curtin Chifley uh, government, and then adopted by the Menzies government, where all the returned soldiers were employed by the government if they couldn't find work in the private sector, mm. and we had um, uh, you know a couple of million people immigrating from Europe, and mm-hmm. they all were found work. And they, they, the most famous one is the Snowy Hydro scheme, but the government put everybody to work, and we had unemployment running at less than two percent. So the job guarantee is similar to that insofar as the government will provide uh, a job to anyone who wants work, it's voluntary, mm-hmm. at the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Not, above, not above the minimum wage. It's not a sliding scale. It's not if you do this job, you're going to get paid this. And you're gonna, it's at the minimum wage. So it sets the benchmark for the minimum wage. So it's an opt-in um, program and the government is offering a job and you can always walk into a job guarantee office and get a job. It's always in, it's an indefinite program. It just rolls on and on. Yeah. Now, it's... <clears throat> the it... reason it's so controversial, I think, is because the UBI and the job guarantee, they're kind of competing in, the, in what people might call the same policy space. So they're both... They're two different solutions to what people are seeing as kind of the same problem. And I think that's why, you know, you've got to start and say, you know, I can understand why a lot of people would be into a UBI because like us who are understanding the job guarantee, which is a child of modern modern monetary theory, is that we see this issue where there's growing inequality in Australia and elsewhere. There are people in poverty. There are people living, you know, with not 
enough material well-being and making crazy, you know, being in this situation where they have to decide whether to, you know, buy shoes for their kid or, or for, buy the med medications that they need. Nobody in Australia should be in that position. So we're all kind of seeing the same problem. We're seeing people stuck in shitty, you know, nowhere jobs for low pay. We're seeing the exploitation of workers. So we're all seeing the same problem. But the people who are, are, are proposing the UBI solution there, I think they're seeing the causes of the problem differently from how people who propose the job guarantee do. And so anyway, so there's quite a bun fight. Apparently it's been going on for a decade and a half, this, um, this debate. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I kind of see the UBI as uh, they're, they're addressing a problem. They're saying um, people need money to get by and say, here's some money. Uh, and that's good for the economy because they're going to spend it to the economy and it's going to do a lot of the things that, that are good for the economy. Mm -hmm. The problem with it is that it's basically a uh, – it's it just props up a consumerist society with uh, with no no point of connection. Uh, and the, the point of difference with the job guarantee is that we recognise in society that to do something to contribute to society is a is a, a powerful thing that it that mm. it helps frame your identity it helps establish your relationships uh, with other people and with the community mm. uh, whereas UBI you're sitting back doing uh, uh, there's no requirement to do anything for it now you you might go and volunteer but there's no requirement mm. whereas the, the job guarantee it gives you more incentive to actually become involved in work yeah yeah what you're talking what you're describing there is a bit of what the experience might be in the each of the two different programs but I was wondering Kevin um, can I can I take you to the beach for a moment sure, sure you can take me to the beach anytime <laughs> you like Anne. <laughs> I want you to imagine, right, that you're, there, there's this guy and he's walking along the beach and he's carrying a bag and every now and then he bends over and he picks up some rubbish off the beach and he puts it in the bag. And so what he's doing is he's picking up, you know, all those plastic bottle tops and all the plastic straws and all the other sorts of things that either, you know, they blow onto the beach or they get washed up on the beach. And so he's walking along and he's cleaning up the beach and he's doing that because he's decided himself that the way he wants to, to contribute to society is to clean up the beach. And he's kind of, he's got, he's able to put a roof over his head or whatever because he's on a, he's on the UBI. So he's getting probably $20,000 a year. And he can top that up every now and then by going off and getting a bit of casual work. And in the meantime, he's saying, I've got a bit of spare time and I've decided all by myself that this is how I'm going to contribute. Now, I want you to imagine the same guy walking down the same beach with the same bag, picking up the same rubbish day after day, and he's doing this as part of a job guarantee program. And so now he's getting paid maybe 45000 odd a year. He's getting a, 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 an inclusive wage. He's getting, um, he's getting paid sick leave. He's getting paid annual leave. He's getting public holidays. If he steps on a syringe, he, he gets work cover. And so what I could never understand, and it took me quite a while to understand, is why is the first guy who's doing exactly the same stuff, but he's doing it under a universal basic income, why is that actually going to undermine the currency? It's going to undermine the productivity of the country it, or of the whole economy. It's actually going to um, undermine workers' conditions and it's and, and he can't get a livable wage out of it. Whereas if he's doing it for a job guarantee, he's got a much better individual circumstance and also he's shoring up workers' rights, he's shoring up the economy, he's making the economy much more stable and much more productive. Now, what's the difference? Yeah, well, there's there's quite a bit of difference there, and it comes down to status. Um, <laughs> it, I, I, I think the UBI is going to have a hard time breaking through that, that status of the haves and the haves-nots. It, it, it kind of it, it's going to encourage the polarisation of wealth, and it's not going to do much for improving the status of those who haven't got uh -huh. a, haven't got enough. It just turns them into uh, it says, listen, you're, you're poor. We'll give you enough so that you can still consume, because mm. we need you to consume. Um, mm. um, but that's it. Yeah. Uh, well, the difference, you see, the difference in those two scenarios uh, 
is macroeconomics. Macroeconomics explains to you what the difference is. And so this is, this is the case that um, people like us who are pro the JG, we have to make. And so what's happening with the UBI is this wonderful thing and it's the UBI, the whole thing, the whole structure, the whole edifice, the whole concept of the UBI is the prime example of fallacy of composition. And we've talked about fallacy of composition before. Go over it again for a second. Let's do it one more time. So imagine the same guy. Now he's at a football match and he's sitting there in the stands and it's a full crowd and he's watching the football match, but he can't quite see around the head in front of the person sitting in front of him. So what does he do? He thinks, I'll stand up so I can see better. And a person who's pro-UBI, they would say that if, a, if you stand up, you'll be able to see the match better. The thing is that they haven't thought through what if everybody stands up. And if everybody stands up, then everybody's back to where you started. They've got the same kind of awful view as if they were sitting down. And, in fact, they're in a worse position than when they started because now they've got to stand up. They can't stand up anymore. The they can't, you know, they're not going to get any taller. Yeah. yeah. Now they've got to stand up instead of sitting down. So they're actually – everyone's now in a worse position. And that's the fallacy of composition. And it's kind of like that individualism, libertarian stuff we were talking about before, is that – People think if it's good for the individual, it must be good for a whole society. If someone's poor and it takes them out of poverty to give them some money, if we give everyone money, that's going to get rid of poverty. And that's completely missing or it's completely making that mistake of the fallacy of composition. Can I make a comparison that might uh, make some sense? I'm just thinking this on the hop, is that uh, you see all of these um, uh, first home owner grants that the government um, provides mm -hmm. to people who are trying to get into the, the housing market. And all it does is push the, house, the, the, the price of houses up because if they get a $20,000 grant, the, anybody selling a house knows that the, that person's got an extra 20000 so everything goes up by 20000 are, are you talking about a similar sort of effect with the UBI? Yeah, where, similar yeah. things. So what they're missing, and you only get this if you get macroeconomic, if you put your macroeconomic hat on. And I think it's really unfortunate that, you know, in our society nobody is taught to think in macroeconomic terms, like we could learn this in primary school. Yeah. And so, you know, and the other, just just as a quick aside, the reason I know that um, the UBI is kind of low-hanging intellectual fruit, like it's it's the, it's the easy idea. I just heard a whole bunch of people who are UBI supporters go, ooh, you just I know. call us low-hanging fruit. I sound really <laughs> mean. But the reason I know it's kind of not a great idea is because I invented it, Kevin. <laughs> 20, 26 years ago, I invented it, and I can remember I can remember the conversation I was having with this person who wanted to get rid of unemployment benefits. Yeah, and I said, "Au contraire, I think we should pay everyone ten thousand bucks a year, no matter what." Yeah, so I was. I was probably, you know, UBI all along. And because UBI is the easy idea to get, but it is, um, it's not intuitive as to why it's wrong. And why it's wrong is because of this fallacy of composition, which macroeconomics can explain to you. So if we gave everybody money for, with no um, expectation that they're going to be productively employed in, in exchange for the money... Then you are completely undermining the whole point of a whole point of a monetary system. So the point of a monetary system is to mobilise resources, and that just means get people to do stuff. And so now you're not obliging people to do stuff with your monetary system. And eventually, like it wouldn't happen immediately, but over time that would undermine the value of your currency. You probably wouldn't see that for I don't know, maybe half a decade, a decade or more. The other thing is that at the same time you are increasing spending capacity or spending power in the economy, so you're giving more people who are, you know, at the moment don't have enough income, their ability to spend would increase, so you're increasing the spending power in the economy at the same time that you would decrease productivity. We're talking and, about aggregate demands here, aren't we? That, mm. That's where, so, so we've got extra money, but we've got no extra product, and therefore it, it, it might have the potential to devalue. Uh, and cause a bit of inflation. Cause a bit of inflation, or, or maybe just an adjustment where everything steps up, much as the same as with the, um, with the first home uh, grant where everything just goes up and stops at that level. The, the other thing which, um, which 
I like to think about when we're talking about a job guarantee. Mm. We need to think, this is a little bit idealistic, but we need to consider it, is that there's a lot of this talk about the UBI and the uh, came around because people were concerned that automation was going to uh, remove people from the workplace. Right. Uh, and so how are they, gonna, how are they going to uh, afford anything if their jobs become redundant? Mm. Um, and that kind of sounds fair enough. Um, but we need to start thinking more broadly about work as a whole. Now, James Maynard Keynes was thinking about these things. John. Back. John Maynard. Keep calling Maynard. him James. Keep on calling him James. Why? John. <laughs> it's his twin brother. Uh, yeah. Okay. So John Maynard Keynes was talking about this back in the 30s, I believe. And he was predicting that by this time, uh, you know, right now, we, we would be working far less hours than what we mm. are due to automation. Mm -hmm. And so that we should be working 20, 25 hours a week. Mm. But that hasn't happened because there was called the, the Ford Keynesian um, uh, movement came in where the uh, productivity that was uh, that was created by automation, uh, by, you know, uh, production lines such as uh, Henry Ford, um, rather than that uh, productivity being uh, enjoyed by the person who's doing the work, it was captured by the, uh, the owner of the business. Mm. And so rather than uh, affording to have more time, it was more profit for the owners. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of become standard now. Mm. Um, uh, I've just been working with um, uh, putting a, a bathroom into a place and the, uh, the girl who was living there has this, who's working as an architect, has a, uh, is learning a new program. Uh, and I've, I've been interested in this sort of stuff. Uh, so she can now um, design uh, houses a lot quicker. Mm. So rather than a house taking a week, it can take a day. Oh, wow. Um, uh, so that, that should translate to, okay, I'm going to do this house uh, on Monday and I've got the rest of the week yeah, off. exactly. No, she has to do five houses a week now. Um, mm. So, and, mm. and she gets paid a little bit more, but not as much as the mm -hmm. equation works out. So we never got the leisure dividend. <laughs> no, the leisure dividend was was stolen by the production uh, by the by the owners of, of um, uh, owners of business, uh, mm. and we've been ripped off. And this is why um, this is part of the whole neoliberal thing for the last forty fifty years. We've been ripped mm. off as workers. Mm. We have been ripped off. These productivity gains have have gone to to the, the capitalists and the workers have been left behind. I'm getting really lefty here, but it's, but it's true. <laughs> it's I mean, true. The, the numbers I'm are there to support I'm becoming more and more of a Marxist the more I learn this stuff. Yeah, anyway. yeah. So, so if we adjust <clears throat> our thinking to say, rightio, look, we should only be working 25 hours a week. And the guy that you were talking about um, walking down the beach, he's mm. not just a guy walking down the beach. He's a surfer. He likes to go surfing. So mm. rather than uh, him just being a surfer, we call him a, a, a beach patroller. It's his mm. job to make sure that the beach is in good condition mm. um, and that if anybody is struggling out there that He's, he's a good fit surfer. He can, so he's now performing an active duty, and he's getting paid the minimum wage to do it. Mm. So, so he's not he's not a beach bum. He's a productive member of society. He's helping keep the place mm. going. He's mm. feeling valued. His mm. status is up there. Mm. This is the work we should be talking about. So, so we can get rid of all of these these um, these production line jobs, mm. uh, which are dehumanised. Mm. We, we don't need them. They're, they're, we can get machines to do it, and we can apply ourselves to do right. far more human activity. Well, that's the thing. That's the other thing that the job guarantee does that the universal basic income will never do. So the universal basic income does not address issues around the labor force and labor force participation. And that's because it is defining the problem that we see as a problem of not enough money. And the job guarantee defines the problem as exploited um, work or not enough work. So either you don't get any work because you're unemployed or you don't get enough work so you're underemployed or you do have work but you paid a, a crap amount and you're in a terrible job. So the the job guarantee is understanding this problem differently. It's seeing it as a problem of how work is structured, not a problem of who's got money. And, and so they're seeing that people are barred from or denied access into the economy through the problem around how you structure work. Now, the job guarantee can do just what you're saying, Kevin, which is it has the ability now to uh, redefine what work is and redefine what um, a minimum wage is. So this is it's kind of interesting to look at these two dynamics. So if you compare... What a UBI would do to someone who is in a low-income work, what will happen is if we have our guy again and he walks into a workplace and he says, hi, I'd like a job, if there's a universal basic income, the boss is going to look at him and go, hmm, 
I know that you get $20,000 a year. Now, I normally pay someone to do this job $40,000, but I'm going to pay you $20,000 because I know that you only um, need $40,000. Because 000. you can. That's right. And that's what they've been doing. Yeah. And if you don't think this happens, it's been happening all the yeah. time. So that's what we call the UBI would, and even probably a basic income would end up acting as a, a what they call a wage subsidy. And so it would actually drive down wages and it would actually um, make casual work and part-time work and, you know, exploitable work um, I used more. To, I used to work for a fella back in the 80s <laughs> as a roadie and he did that to me. I was on unemployment <laughs> benefits and he said, right, yeah, well, let's just keep this under the table and, and I'll, yeah, I'll and top I know, it up. And I'll just yep. top up your... Yep. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that would happen. Now, under a job guarantee, your guy walks into the same business and he says, hi, I'd like a job. And the guy says, well, I usually pay 40000 a year for this. And the guy looks at him and goes, well, I'm getting 45000 a year on the job guarantee, so you can take your job and stick it. Shove it, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So so then the, what the boss has to do is say, okay, well, in that case, I better pay you $15,000 a year because I really want you to work and I'll give you the same um, you know, conditions. In fact, I'll give you another week's holiday as well. And that will entice someone out of the job guarantee pool and into the private sector. And so what's happening there is what the economists call putting a floor, a floor under wages and conditions throughout the whole economy, because hardly anyone's going to want to work for less than what the job guarantee can give you. So if you compare those two dynamics, that alone is a reason to go for a job guarantee. But you know what? I can, I can see people saying that is just so idealistic, it's never going to happen. The only reason it's idealistic idealistic is because we have gone so far down the neoliberal back alleys and driven down our standards so far over the decades that it now seems kind of like ridiculously idealistic. And yet, as I said before, we occupied this space in post-World War II Australia. Mm. And rather than improving upon that and, and making that situation better and better, the neoliberals uh, hijacked the economy during the 70s and they've driven us to the point we are now. And it's very disappointing, Anne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do think if you, you probably, you know, a lot of people won't realise it, but if they're supporting a, a universal basic income or a basic income, they're actually walking straight into the arms of the neoliberal ideology. Yeah. And as you say, you know, because it treats people as individual consumption, it's actually treating people as consumers. Consumer units. That's their status. Yeah. Go and buy some stuff. Yeah. Go and buy your cheap They're saying food. the problem is that you, you can't buy, you can't spend. That's your problem. Yeah. Whereas the job guarantee is treating people as laborers, as people with something to offer the community. And, um, yeah. And when you frame it in, in terms of work, such as the um, as the surfer who's now doing stuff, or you're um, working uh, to improve the environment, you, you're fixing up uh, bushfire-ravaged areas, you're working on a renewable grid, mm. you're working in aged care, looking mm. after uh, reading stories. To, you're not taking the, the trained aged care workers' jobs. You're assisting them. You're mm. acting as uh, yeah. a, a, auxiliary labour to Im improve uh, our society so yes. that you're valued, you're getting paid, everybody loves you, and it's just mm. one big love fest. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm fully into it. Yeah. I think we need to have a, a, give our brains just a little bit of a rest, mm -hmm. um, and we'll come back to discuss this a little further soon. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fightback Program. Great program. Great guests. <laughs>
So that was um, Solange, we heard from then. Solange, her sister is really famous, I've forgotten, I've forgotten her name. Uh, I, I went to see, I was going to go and see Solange a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, the Vivid Festival in Sydney, um, and it, it was pretty extravagant because she only comes out to Australia every now and again, and uh, and she plays in Sydney at the Opera House and then goes, and I reckon she's really good, and I thought, okay, bugger it, I'm going to buy a ticket, go and stay with my mate, go to the gig, and then turn around and come back down again, and I had it all planned out, um, and... Uh, so I'm um, on the way out to the airport, and I thought I'm cutting this a bit fine. And so as I'm heading down one of the the uh, towards the gate, I could see my plane in the uh-huh. gate, and I've got my bag over my shoulder, mm-hmm. just a little bag. And I thought I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. Uh-huh. And halfway down, I saw the plane start to back out no. from the gate. I go, <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, it's okay, I'll get on the next plane. But the, you can't get on the next plane these days; they just don't mm. let you. And so if you have a look at if you look up Solange at the at the uh, Opera House. Mm. My seat was There's in the, an empty seat there. My seat was in the choir, which was I, I was looking at the back of back of her because I I, I, I booked late, and but it's still a really good seat. You'll see my you'll empty, see your you'll seat. see my empty chair. Oh, so I don't think you should watch that again. <sighs> Dear me. Okay. What was the other one we heard before? Oh, the other one before that was um, was Salt. I forgot to back announce, and that's mm. uh, that's called. Uh, are you from London? <laughs> it's, it's just a great song, Salt. So so, but we've got to wrap up um, yeah, pretty we soon. So controversial. Virtual yeah. before, I don't know. We've got to stop agreeing with each other or something. Yeah. Now, there's a, a conference coming up, but we're gonna, I think we, we, we've actually got to go um, be, before. What's the date? Sustainable Prosperity, Saturday the 23rd of October and Sunday the 24th of October. You can go online, just Google Sustainable Prosperity, and the conference name is Rethinking Capitalism. If you want to know what all this MMT stuff is about and what it's got to do with climate change. Got to go to that conference because it's really good. But yeah, um, we've got to go, Anne. Thank you for again for another great show. Um, and Mafalda's up next, so let's get out of here. Skid- skedaddle. <laughs>
been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You meant all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you got all the pleasure, then what, I had, no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, I, I don't mind you having the pleasure. It's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable I think we've got a multiplier of pleasure here. That means it's doubly pleasurable. So it will be pleasurable for you in the first place and it will be pleasurable for later. It's twice as pleasurable as before. That's a good thing. Double pleasure. What could go wrong? listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.